Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Ham and Egg News series, posted October 21st, 2020, titled, If Hibernation is True, Why Are There Still Naps? Welcome to Apologia, and another edition of Ham and Egg News, where we react to Ken Ham reacting to things. If you're new to the channel, why not take a second to tap on the subscribe button, so that you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. I'm here with Ken Ham and Dr. Gabriella Gaines. I'm Dr. Georgia Purdom. And so... October is a famous month. Okay, why is it famous? Because I get younger. Oh, that's right. It's your birthday. You keep reminding me of that. Are you hinting? Well, you get to a certain age, and then <laughs> every year you get younger. Maybe that's how Ken calculates the age of the Earth. It hit 2.2 billion years, decided that was plenty old. Then every year after that, the Earth simply insisted it was getting younger, and now it's back down to just a few thousand. 6,000 years is more of a vanity age for the Earth's dating profile. That's the first news item of the day, so... <laughs> It's Fat Bear Week. We always have a fun one to start with. Okay, Fat Bear Week 2020 crowns Trumpster as fattest bear. So they're, they're saying this thing rings in at 1,400 pounds. Almost like me. Isn't this discrimination? <laughs> now she's making fun of herself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. Well, um... one of the things I was reading, it said that they do this. Obviously, most of us think, well, bears hibernate. That's why they have to do this. But technically, bears do not hibernate. Did you know that? So bears go into torpor, um, not hibernation. Now, when I went to school, I was told bears hibernate. <laughs> There's lots of things you learned in school that aren't true today, Ken. Thank you, Georgia. I've been saying that since our first episodes. The little bit of biology that Ken happens to recall from his education in the early 70s is certainly out of step with what is being taught today, nearly 50 years later. Do they go to sleep in the winter? In they do. They, in, they enter a deep sleep. Nope, because hibernate, they don't wake up at all until the spring. But torpor, they can wake up. Right? That tells us the difference okay. there. Hibernate. Is yeah, no, I'm not doing isn't that at all. A I'm, type of hibernation? I'm the scientist, and I say it's different. Okay. Welcome, <laughs> yes, Georgia, to the massive set of scientifically literate people who, after having listened to Ken Ham describe his misunderstanding of a phenomenon, say evolution, for example, are left with no further recourse other than to scrunch their nose in disgust and say firmly, I'm the scientist, and I say it's different. Okay? I bet Ken hears that a lot. Yeah, but I, I've always thought bears hibernate. Now you've ruined my whole understanding of bears. I always thought evolution was dumb. And then learning the actual facts ruined my whole understanding of evolution. Well, I'm sorry. Sometimes the truth hurts, okay? But they gotta do it anyway. I'm sorry, Ken. Sometimes the truth hurts. But we've gotta tell it anyways. All right, All right so bear, what's it called again? Torpor. Torpor. T-O-R-P-O-R. -O -R. see, if I get up and say... Oh, the bear's in torpor. Nobody's going to know what I'm saying. <laughs> but when I try to describe evolution accurately, no one's going to know what I'm saying. How many describe it? If I say the bear's hibernated, they know what I'm saying. <laughs> when I say God made Adam out of dirt, everyone knows what I'm saying. <sighs> well, uh, how 
however you want to say it, Ken. All right. Okay. okay. Moving on to other things. Okay. We might, we might need another PhD here to keep him on track. PhDs you think it would actually take for Ken to understand and be able to articulate the processes of biological evolution? Do you realize how devastating it is to me to think that bears don't hibernate? If Ken is this resistant to accuracy in bear behaviors, imagine how much he'd kick and scream against any correction related to biological evolution. The man might explode. Just to make your day, I'll put up the pitch, the next one. Okay. So that you can no, see. No, that's not going to make my day. <laughs> there we are. Okay. Just what I wanted to see, Hillary Clinton. Yeah. The article Ken is displaying is in a bit of a huff over something Secretary Clinton said on her podcast. Oh, I didn't realize Hillary Clinton had a podcast. Looks like she started about a month ago. So, you know, she's basically brand new at this. You know, probably not as good as mine. If you search your podcast app for Apologia, you'll see my podcast started back in June. So that's like five months. I'm not saying my podcast is five times as good, but, y y you know, it's probably, it's probably five times as good. I mean, it's cool. Hillary could start one. You know, after after I started one, they're, they're probably both good. I mean, you could check hers out or whatever after you've subscribed to mine, you know, because I've been doing it way longer. Well, Hillary Clinton says young people are leaving the church because it is so judgmental, so alienating. Let's hear what she actually said. How do you see now what the church should be doing? Because... A lot of people are leaving the church. A lot of young people are leaving the church, in part because the way they understand what Christianity has become is, you know, so judgmental, so alienating uh, that they think to themselves, well, I don't need that. I don't want to be part of that. So that is her idea for why. That's Hillary's idea. Just last year, the people at Lifeway Research a group that assists and equips church leaders with insight and advice that will lead to greater levels of church health and effectiveness, published the results of a survey asking 20-somethings who used to be churchgoers why they left. The number two answer, representing 32% of the responders, was church members seemed judgmental or hypocritical. This isn't Hillary Clinton's idea. It's what's reflected in the data. Hillary Clinton said that. Yeah, you know, yep. where she's known for her church attendance and being a Christian after all. Does she know what a church is? <laughs> Since arriving in Washington, D.C., the Clinton family settled in at the Foundry Methodist United Church, where the Washington Post reports they worshipped most Sundays when he's in town. Contrast that with current President Donald Trump, whom Ken Ham has expressed his admiration and support of. According to the Post, Trump attended one church service before his inauguration and only two since, one in 2017 and one in 2019. I'm not one to ride to Hillary's defense, but the woman knows what a church is. It says she's a member of the United Methodist Church, but I don't know what that really means. I get it. Sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. But Hillary's faith isn't actually relevant to this story. She's being very judgmental here too, right? Well, yeah. Judging the public churches. Yeah. No. No, she's not. I'm guessing no one on this panel actually listened to the interview. Hillary is reporting reasons given by young people who leave. It's not her opinion. At no point did Hillary express that she thought the church was too judgmental. Hillary is attempting to explore ways for the church to combat this perception. Apparently, Ken and Georgia and Gabriella just saw the name of a woman they don't like and an opinion they don't like and decided to put the two together. Hillary may be a lot of things, 
but she's not guilty of judging churches in this interview. You know what they mean by judgmental and alienating? When you say you are a sinner, mm -hmm. well, that's judgmental, right? In this story, if you bother to look past the headline, the people who are making the judgmental charge are church members who leave because they perceive an attitude of judgment. I can see why someone outside the church might think a sinner label is judgmental, but Clinton is concerned about the youth inside the church, Ken. They are against the absolutes of Christianity. Yeah. And what they want is moral relativism. And they say, you're judgmental. But then she's being judgmental on us by judging us right. and accusing us of being judgmental. Think about that. <laughs> she's accusing you of being perceived by your own people as being judgmental. She would like to help change that perception. Ken is spitting out friendly fire here. They're not tolerant of intolerance. Right. I've heard this ridiculous phrase far too often to think it's ever going to go away. Plus, I really care about actions more than I do attitude. I think that rather than tolerance, I'm going to describe my positions as anti-harm. I want to prevent harm. If Answers in Genesis is taking a pro-harm position, I'm going to stand against that. You know, from Hillary Clinton's perspective, why does she care anyway? I mean... What, what would happen if you ask her, what happens when you die? What would she say? You're dead. Yeah. <laughs> In this New Yorker interview, Hillary wasn't specifically asked that question, but she affirmed a soul, an afterlife, and the resurrection of Jesus. You can accuse her of lying or pandering if you want, Ken, but she's not going to give you a naturalistic answer. This is more friendly fire. All right, let's move on from Hillary Clinton. I'm done. All right. New, <laughs> st new study with about 75-year-old belief in reptile hey, evolution. Hey, hey, before we go on, you know, in regard to the bears and hibernation? Yes. If you just cut it off when they wake up, then that they hibernate. That's not torpor. And then... <laughs> I mean, okay, so in this study, what this um, individual did, the scientist did, was he kind of traveled around to different places, that, uh, 20 countries actually, and 50 different museums to take um, CT scans and photos of 1,000 reptilian fossils. And so he basically came up with a new model to explain how we got all of the um, uh, reptile species that we have today. So they keep calling it evolution, but it's not. It's speciation. I know that creationists tend to be very fluid in their taxonomic classifications, resisting attempts to pin them down on what a kind is or what it isn't. But on past shows, Georgia has affirmed that speciation is where one portion of a breeding population becomes so varied that they can't interbreed anymore. This study covered the entire taxonomic class Reptilia, all going back to a common ancestor. If Georgia wants to call the differences between snakes, turtles, crocodiles, and theropod dinosaurs just speciation, then we can work with that. But she doesn't. To AIG, those are all different created kinds without a common ancestor. So this is lazy hand-waving. Maybe the paleontologist on stage can help. But he's just saying that the model used to say, well, this took, it was a slow incremental process, but he says, no, there's really just been short bursts of changes that have occurred to give us all the reptiles we have today. That's the exact opposite of what the article and paper put forth. One of the open questions in evolution is to what extent the process was entirely gradual, like a ramp, and to what extent might external factors have contributed to a form of punctuated evolution, more like a staircase. Georgia just described this new article research as pushing toward punctuation, but it says literally the opposite. From the article, the findings are contradicting a widely held theory that major transitions in evolution have always happened in big, quick, geologically speaking, bursts, triggered by major environmental shifts. 
In it, researchers show that the evolution of extinct lineages of reptiles from more than 250 million years ago took place through many small bursts of morphological changes. Instead of a single major evolutionary event, as previously thought, they also show that the early evolution of most lizard lineages was a continuously slower and more incremental process than previously understood. It's almost like she didn't actually read the article or paper behind it. And you notice they put these pictures around here of the reptiles of the different kinds. At least Ken looked at the pictures. Good job, Ken. Because that's what you find. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the pictures on the outside represent the most modern animal known from each clade. But the researchers literally found a thousand nodes that went into this diagram. Not just the ones in the edges. Perhaps it's too much to ask for this panel to read the paper beyond the article. But it also has lots of colorful pictures, Ken showing the work behind each branch here, like this diopsid branch, and all the nodes representing specimens actually found. That's what you find, if you look. In other words, it's not evolution. No, it's not evolution. The research demonstrates the gradual common descent from all these varied reptiles. This is exactly evolution, and the exact opposite of the created kind story from Answers in Genesis. That's okay. a equivocation. It's a fallacy. Right. It's something that sounds logic, but it's not logic. I'm going to give Gabriella a break, since English is her second language. But that's not what an equivocation fallacy is. Equivocation fallacy is when an argument uses an ambiguous word in different ways in different parts of the argument. Like if I said, Margot Robbie is a star... Therefore, Margot Robbie is a giant ball of gas in space. Now, utilizing words with possible ambiguity is just fine, as long as the argument remains internally consistent using just one definition. Perhaps Gabriella objects that she would prefer to use the word evolution to mean something else, but that doesn't show the researchers equivocated. The paper is entirely internally consistent using a single definition of evolution, to mean common descent with modification acted upon by natural selection. No equivocation. Yeah, I mean, so it's just another evolutionary model. I don't know how many times we do papers on evolutionary models that get thrown in the trash can that they thought were really true for I don't know how long, and then it's like, nope, now we think this. New information comes to light. It is the reasonable person who adjusts their thinking to accommodate this new information. If someone is unwilling to change their mind, we call them stubborn. We don't give them a prize. There's another term for that. It's called fairy tale. If my whole career was based on the story of a family and their boat full of animals, I'm not sure I'd throw the word fairy tale around very much. Maybe that's just me. Hey, before you go on here, yep. somebody asked here... Um, if it's about hibernation, I don't want to hear it. No, no, okay. no. <laughs> I've given up on the hibernation. Okay, good. That's good. Right, because I, I, I can't convince you. Yet another set of scientists unconvinced by Ken Ham. And these are the ones that work for him. All right, uh, study. 44% of self-identified Christians in the U.S. believe the Bible is ambiguous on abortion. Uh, can I ask you a question first? What is a self-identified Christian? All Christians are self-identified Christians because Christianity is generally a belief system, a worldview, a philosophy, or a relationship, depending on who's doing the defining. And these are all mental states, which cannot be directly observed by others. The same is true of any philosophy, belief, or worldview. Atheism, Buddhism, nihilism, existentialism, anything. Despite possible behavioral clues to know where the subject belongs, the subject has to self-identify. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be the question, right? So, like, people who say they're Christian. Now, whether or not they truly are born-again Christian, I don't know. Well, the Bible is clear in Romans 2 and Matthew 7 and elsewhere that it's not possible for humans to know for sure who will go to heaven. 
which is presumably the test of being a real born-again Christian. Judgment Day will include secret things that only God knows, and people who fully thought themselves to be Christians will be excluded. And yet, pointing out who are and aren't real Christians is such a common pastime among believers. Let's just have a look. Let's see if the Bible is ambiguous about abortion, okay? Okay. We're looking for Ken to present passages from the Bible that are non-ambiguous. Here at the Creation Museum, and the people in Legacy Hall here are at the Creation Museum, one of the centerpieces is the walk through the Bible, the seven seas of history, creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion. As you walk through, or think about what you've already walked through, or go and walk at it in, again, those first four seas of the seven seas are foundational to everything else. Okay. So far, not unambiguous Bible passages, but instead a plug for the Creation Museum. So how would you do that in regard to the abortion issue? Well, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, in the image he created them. Okay, so even if that's true, I'm not seeing anything here about abortion, just that humans are like God in some ambiguous way. And then the other thing is using apologetics and some, you know, observational science. Wait, is that the end of the unambiguous Bible verses? After one vague verse... We've abandoned the Bible for apologetics and science. Uh, we know you get one set of DNA from the mother, mother, one set of DNA from the father. Fertilization is a unique combination of information, different to the mother, different to the father. I'm confused. Are there clear, unambiguous Bible verses about the preservation of genetic combinations? So abortion is killing a human being made in the image of God right from fertilization. And I encourage people to come and see our fearfully and wonderfully made exhibit. It is, I believe it's the most powerful such exhibit in the world here at the Creation Museum. Okay, so for those keeping score at home, in Ken's presentation to prove that the Bible is clear on abortion, we've had one Bible verse and two plugs for the Creation Museum. And it's just, a, you know, it really is a slippery slope because 40% of self-identified Christians said lying is morally acceptable. I've heard Christians argue that it can be under certain circumstances, like the classic example of lying in order to hide Jews from Nazis. And I've been in plenty of conversations with self-identified Christians who insist that the Ninth Commandment is about false witness, not lying and so applies only to court situations. As this story is highlighting, like it or not, the Bible is very open to interpretation. You know, so it's a call for us as parents to teach our kids, to put them embracing, serving the church, good church, good material as we have here. That's the reason that we do what we do to get material out there, answers TV, all of this is to give resource so the Christian can have answers and can teach uh, your kids to, to walk with God. The panel is objecting to fellow Christians who say that the Bible is ambiguous on abortion, then proceeding to give only one extremely ambiguous seemingly unrelated Bible verse, and then saying that in order to agree, children need to be raised not on the Bible, but outside material, like her list of answers in Genesis, books, videos, and attractions. It seems to me that if the Bible was clear on this teaching, then you wouldn't need anything but the Bible to be clear on this teaching. Frankly, I'm surprised it's only 44% of Christians who admit that their book is ambiguous. Since we're almost out of time, let's skip to the, the bird-like dinosaurs article, since that's Gabby's specialty. Um, bird-like dinosaurs that lost a finger show evolution in action. So I'm just going to have Gabby take it away here. Well, Gabby, can I just ask you, what is a bird-like dinosaur? Because when I read this, I discovered it was a bird. Do we believe that Ken read it? I'm skeptical. Let's see. 
A bird like dinosaur, it's a bird. I went everybody's head about the bird. Okay, <laughs> so because they now call bird, 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 bird and dinosaur, everything dinosaur, when they find a bird, they say, oh, we found a dinosaur. But you go, you go and see the whole anatomy of the, of the animal, it's a bird. It's just a bird. But the problem is, because they're redefining the words and the meaning of the words, they're just using and deceiving people, being deceived and deceiving right. people here too, to think that there is a, um, a uh -huh. common ancestor between bird and, and dinosaur. Just like the word fish doesn't really have a precise scientific meaning, nor does bird. So this redefining that Gabriella is concerned about isn't really happening in the scientific literature. The biological class aves and the word avian does have more precise definitions and requirements. That said, findings like these tend to be why cladistics grouping is more flexible and accurate than the more familiar Linnaean system. But in the Bible context, Leviticus 11 includes bats in the list of birds. So this vague, non-scientific word really is in the world of equivocation that Gabriella was complaining about earlier. Ancient books aren't particularly helpful in modern biology. No, they're different kinds. They were created in different days and uh, the, the creation week. So it just, it, just, it just has been a... This is part of the biggest problem with even the slightest acknowledgement that birds descended from dinosaurs. Because Genesis 1 says that birds were created the day before land animals. So this admission would further disprove a literal reading of that chapter. As the years add more and more evidence to avian lineage, this text seems less and less possible even figuratively. Well, and, and what they're trying to say is like, a, they said a, a two-fingered dinosaur. So they're calling this bird a two-fingered dinosaur. Right. And they're saying that it lost a finger in its evolution. And again, that's not evolution losing something. So let's talk for a minute about the actual study and ramifications of the find. Part of the case for evolution is homology. The similarity of the structure, physiology, or development of different species of organisms pointing to descent from a common evolutionary ancestor. The classic example, as displayed in my local museum with actual skeletons, is that the limbs of humans, horses, birds, bats, whales, etc. are really just reconfigurations of the same five-digit skeletal plan. If the hypothesis holds that the single-figured configuration in modern birds is the result of fusions of multiple fingers, then finding a two-fingered form would very much be the kind of transitional fossil that evolution deniers insist don't exist. If your elitist East Coast evolution is real, why has no one found the missing link between modern humans and ancient apes? We did find it. It's called Homo erectus. Then you have proven my case, sir. For no one has found the link between apes and this Homo erectus. Yes, they have. It's called Homo habilis. Aha! But no one has found the missing link between ape and the so-called Homo habilis. Yes, they have! It's called Australopithecus africanus! Oh, I've got you now. Fair enough. But where, then, is the missing link between apes and this Darwinius massili? Answer me that, Professor. Oh, okay, granted, that one missing link is still missing. But just because we haven't found it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Pshaw! Things don't exist simply because you believe in them. Thus saith the almighty creature in the sky! Yet here it is. Pretty cool, right? 
what they now do, they, they started to push that idea in a big way, right. and now what they're doing is they're calling birds dinosaurs or bird-like dinosaurs. It's a way of brainwashing and indoctrinating people in evolutionary ideas. It's a way of being precise with language and accurately describing things, something everyone should aspire to. Well, they're even classifying birds now as reptiles. Did you mm -hmm. know that? So their class is no longer aves, but reptilia. So they're trying to change that. As I mentioned, one of the limitations of the Linnaean system is trying to stick to a fixed number of descriptors. But yes, Ava is really a subclass of reptilia, despite any disruption this causes in the category system. So they found a dinosaur that it actually looks like a bird? No, it's a bird. When you find a bird, it's a bird. When well, you find a dinosaur, it's a dinosaur. Well, because if you acknowledge that something is halfway between, then you'd have to admit a transitional form. Answers in Genesis can't admit such a thing, so they call it 51% bird, making it fully bird. Problem solved. And it says it resembles a small ostrich. <laughs> so it's a bird. And then they said it's a dinosaur. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Not everything is exactly as it appears. For example, Answers News has the artifice of a news program. Snap judgments based solely on appearance can get you in trouble. Always look deeper. Hey, someone's oh. asking me if I'm going to hibernate tonight. <laughs> uh, all right, well, we're out of time Yay. for today, so we'll see you back here on Wednesday. Thanks. I will. This has been exhausting. But I hope you'll join us for the next episode, which you'll be notified of if you subscribe. And there's always this previous episode of Answers News to tide you over until then. Tap on the thumbnail. And I'll see you over there. Later.